reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18, going through to verse 25. As is Paul speaking, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded miracles, miraculous signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Um, so I'm going to encourage you to, to stand up this morning as we come to God's Word. Um, and uh, grab out your Bibles. Yep, that's you can stand now. We're going to pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. And so we're starting a new series this morning called It Is Finished. We uh, finished up our life renovation series last week and we're starting a new series this week called It Is Finished. And, and, and so this is about the cross and the cross, is, of course, is at the centre uh, of the, the Christian gospel. It's at the centre of the Christian message. It's uh, core to our faith, yet with all things, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And so um, as we stand this morning and get ready to receive God's Word, I want to pray that we are blown away again throughout this series uh, with the, the power of the message of Jesus' cross and his resurrection. And so pray with me um, as we come to God's word. So Father, we just, we just thank you as we sang in song. We thank you now as we come to your word for the cross. We thank you for Jesus' nail-pierced hands. We thank you that the tomb is empty and that in him and through his death and resurrection that we have life. And so Father, I pray this morning and throughout this series, my prayer is that that as we head towards Easter and as we, as we go through um, the calendar-oriented celebrations of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that, that there would be no familiarity or contempt with the power of the message of the cross, that we would be um, in awe of you and in awe of what has been accomplished through the cross and the resurrection. In Jesus' almighty name we pray. Amen. So take a seat. Um, and we're going to uh, jump into God's Word. And so the title of this series comes from John, um, John's Gospel when he was recording the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's actually John's words that he records as, sorry, John's recording of Jesus' last words. And so it says later, that's after some of the earlier events on the cross, it says, knowing that all was now completed. And so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so we're taking that, that, those last words according to John's Gospel, It is finished as the title of this series. And what we're really looking at is, What is finished? What was accomplished through Jesus' cross and his resurrection? 
We're going to be exploring the cross and the resurrection through, through different New Testament passages. So it's not going to be a systematic theology or, or, or that kind of thing where we're going to unpack all the, you know, the 10 or 15 or however many points there are of what was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to dig deeply into a different New Testament passage each week and explore, I guess, through a different lens what the New Testament writers have to say about what is finished, what is accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. And, and so what Dan read for us this morning is the first of the passages we're going to dig into. We're going to take a deep dive uh, into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And we're actually going to grab the next five verses this morning to wrap that up and finish at verse 30. And so Corinthians uh, is a letter from one of the early church leaders, the Apostle Paul, to uh, one of the early churches, a church in the city of Corinth. Uh, and, and so Paul wrote this letter to that church and he begins this section of the letter with a statement about the cross. Um, and, and so this first statement he makes about the cross, which I'm about to reread again, says that the cross is actually something that divides humanity. The cross, we, we, we often as a church think of it as something that unites humanity and it does do that, but, but Paul's first statement in this section is a statement of division. The cross of Jesus divides humanity. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. The cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. We have it on our churches, in our churches. It's, it's stamped or printed on the front of many of our Bibles. We wear it around our neck or some of us have it dangling from our ears. Uh, the cross marks the graves of Christians or at least nominal Christians. The, the cross is the symbol of Christianity. If you were to ask somebody who um, is a believer or somebody who's not a believer, anyone that has heard of the Christian faith, if you were to ask them, well, what's the symbol or the logo, uh, to use modern terms, of the Christian faith, the answer would almost unanimously be the cross. Yet for Paul, when he looks at the cross, he sees the great dividing line of humanity. The cross creates a dichotomy. It separates humanity into two mutually exclusive groups. And we're used to these two groups of things in Australia. We're used to you're either a Ford person or a Holden person. Even if you drive a Toyota, you've, you've got an allegiance to one. You, you, you're Coles or you're Woolworths. Even if you usually shop at Aldi or at IGA, there's, there's an allegiance to it. Um, to get more intimate, you're either a scruncher or a folder. Um, if you don't know what that's about, just let it fly over the top of your head. Um, and we'll move on. Um, we, we are used to having kind of two camps and you're in one or the other and we're used to being divided into two groups or two allegiances and, and for Paul, the cross is the ultimate dividing line that separates humanity into two mutually exclusive groups, into a group of those who are perishing and into a group of those who are being saved those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And, and these two groups see the cross very differently. When these two groups look at the same cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, they see two radically different things. For those who are perishing, they look at the cross and they see foolishness 
and weakness and shame. Because see, what we forget, even though we, we mostly know it, but what we forget in our emotional memory is, is that the cross was actually an implement that the Roman Empire used to torture, to shame and to execute the, the most vile of criminals or the enemies of the state. It was a, a symbol of Rome's power over the individual and the individual's weakness within Rome. And so when, when people who are perishing, that is those who don't have faith in Jesus, and that's why they're perishing, look at the cross, they don't just see foolishness. This, the original language here doesn't just mean what we think, oh, that's a bit silly, that's a bit of a folly. They see absurdity, they see madness, they see an abomination to, to proclaim one who has been crucified as the saviour of the world was a ridiculousness in that culture. And so those who are outside of faith in Jesus look at the cross and they see foolishness. This is actually Paul's perspective before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, if we know uh, Paul's story. Paul, who was uh, 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 an avid Jew, uh, a religious Jew, and, and, and someone who was zealous about his faith, he, he could not come to terms with the idea of a crucified Messiah. And so he looked at the cross and he saw foolishness until he met in person the resurrected Jesus, who essentially said, what are you doing, Paul? Why are you persecuting my church? And so Paul had this transformation from, from seeing the cross as foolishness to, to seeing it as God's power and wisdom, but he saw it as foolishness, like this perishing group. He understands both sides of this dichotomy. And in fact, uh, one, of the, one of my favorite biblical scholars, Gordon Fee, um, a very wise man, um, not just in human terms, but in spiritual terms, says this about the cross. From any merely human perspective, the central message of the Christian gospel, that is the message of the cross and Jesus' resurrection, must always appear as folly. So if we're entrenched in church culture occasionally or at times, we, we lose that sense of the foolishness of the cross. It's the natural way to see the cross. But in this great dividing line in this dichotomy between two mutually exclusive groups, Paul says there's another group. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that's those who have faith in Jesus, the message of the cross is the power of God on display. See, there's two groups, those who are perishing because they don't have faith in Jesus, those who are being saved because they believe in Jesus and the message of the cross. And those two groups look at the same cross and one group sees foolishness and the other group sees the power of God on display and Paul makes no allowance for any middle ground. Paul does not allow anybody to sit on the fence. You're in one group or you're in the other group. The cross is either foolishness to us or it is the power of God. We don't get to sit anywhere in between. And so this first verse of this passage today is a heading. It's a, a thesis statement for our potential or past university students. It's, it's, it's a statement that sets the scene for the rest of the passage. And, and it causes us to ask the question of ourselves throughout the rest of the passage. What do we see when we look at the cross? What do I see 
when I look at the cross? Do I see the power of God on display for salvation or do I see foolishness? What do you see when you look at the cross? Do you see foolishness, folly, absurdity, outrage? Or do you see the wisdom and power of God on display? The cross of Jesus divides humanity and the cross of Jesus, Paul goes on to say, humbles all human wisdom. The cross of Jesus humbles all human wisdom. In verse 19 of today's passage, Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And so the cross destroys and frustrates human wisdom. And so here Paul's actually quoting from a, a passage in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, where, where God is speaking through his prophet about the foolishness and the futility of trying to match wits with or outsmart God. And so the context that Paul pulls this from says something to us about his intent in, in, in sharing it in this passage. See, Isaiah and, and Paul and, and God even aren't uh, anti-intellectual. They're, they're not against learning and understanding and, and growing in our wisdom and, uh, and the way we look at the world and the way we see the world and, and medical advancement and things like that. God doesn't want us to be anti-intellectual but Paul quotes this this verse here from Isaiah for, for a simple reason because it is foolish for us to attempt to believe we can outsmart God and it's in fact it's foolish for us to even believe that we can comprehend God apart from what he reveals to us and so Paul quotes this here to say the cross is the fulfillment of this prophecy that, that God will f- destroy and frustrate the kind of human wisdom that elevates itself ag- above God, the kind of human intelligence that thinks it can outsmart God or best God or, or think it can put God in a box. God says through Isaiah and Paul repeats it that he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and in- frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent and the cross is the means through which Jesus does that. And so Paul goes on to say in verse uh, 20 to 21, he says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? And and so Paul refers to a few different groups here. And and where he says, where is the wise person? He's referring to the ancient Greek scholars. The great thinkers of of the world at that time. and, and, And these people, these... Greek philosophers and thinkers and scientists and and, and writers were so influential, they shaped not just the entire Mediterranean world at that time, they they continue to shape the way that we think about and see the world today. The the, the ancient Greek philosophers and scholars, the the people that lived around this time in that location were, were, were the people that have pretty well shaped much of the way the Western world and much of the Eastern world sees the world. And so Paul says, well, where are they in comparison to God's wisdom? We could compare them today to the great secular thinkers of the world, the great scientists, the great you know, university lecturers, the, the great uh, thinkers who advanced our, our medical understanding, the, the, the explorers who um, under, seek to understand our world in a better way. 
And so Paul says, where are they? It only takes a, a fleeting glance at human history to, to be able to see that human wisdom and intelligence and understanding has improved our quality of life remarkably. It's improved our uh, lifespan remarkably through, through medical advancement. And, and so it's not that Paul is saying human wisdom and intelligence has achieved nothing. He goes on to say, Has not God made the foolish made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, that is the cross, to save those who believe. And so the world through its wisdom couldn't know God. The world through its wisdom couldn't bring about salvation. And so that's why Paul says, Well, where are these great scholars? Where are these great thinkers in our times? Where are these great secular geniuses? Through all of that intelligence and wisdom, no one can know God through human wisdom alone or bring about salvation. And through that criteria, even the greatest thinkers of the world fall short. Paul goes on to say, well, where are the teachers of the law? And and so Paul is including the the great Jewish religious scholars of his day. He's saying, where are they? And so the, the, the Jews probably would have been on board with the first one. Those Greeks, those, you know, they think they're so smart, but they haven't saved anything. Um, they, can't, they don't even know God properly. But then Paul throws in the great religious scholars and teachers of the law of his day. And, and, and he says, where are they? Where is their wisdom in compared to God? These are the people that possessed the Scriptures, or at least the, the old, what we now call the Old Testament. They, they studied it religiously and explored it deeply. If anyone should have been able to understand God through human wisdom or, or bring about salvation, it would have been this group of people, the great religious scholars of the day. And Paul says of them, just as he says of the secular scholars, where are they? What has all of that study and wisdom really achieved? It reminds me of uh, something Jesus said that's recorded in John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40 when he speaks to a group of these religious teachers and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, that is Jesus, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. See, possessing all of the the revealed wisdom of God in written form in human hands doesn't achieve anything apart from the revelation of God. It doesn't bring us to even salvation or even a full understanding of God in our human wisdom alone. It is foolishness to think that we can comprehend and know God in our own wisdom apart from His revelation. And so the cross of Jesus is the ultimate humbling of our human wisdom. In Isaiah uh, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, the prophet um, says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my thoughts are higher than your ways. Sorry, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God had kind of prepared us for this 
reality that, that we cannot, apart from God's enabling, comprehend God or the way He's going to work in the world. It's, it's like a yeast cell, which is like a tiny thing. You can fit billions of yeast cells on the end of a pin or bacteria, um, which is kind of the same thing, except for yeast cells make bread and beer and wine and bacteria causes disease, uh, but they're the same thing. You can fit billions on the, the head of a pin and we think it's silly to expect a yeast cell or a bacteria to understand uh, and comprehend the ways of humanity and, and how we think and act and how we interact with the world. We think it foolishness for a single-celled organism to understand the complexity of human life. We think that absolute foolishness, but this prophecy from Isaiah manifest in the cross of Jesus Christ humbles our wisdom and reminds us that even more foolish is for us to expect to comprehend the enormity of who God is. For us to understand His ways and workings in the world apart from His empowering us to understand. If we are infinitely more complex than a single-celled organism, then God is so much more complex than our... I don't know how many cells we have, billions and trillions of cells. God's ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts and the cross is the manifestation of the humbling of human wisdom. Uh, Paul, a few verses down, reflects on that and a little bit tongue-in-cheek says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And, and so he's saying that the cross looks foolish and weak, but it's God's foolishness and weakness, and that far outstrips anything of human strength. The foolishness of God is far wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is far stronger than human strength. And so through the cross, our own wisdom and our own strength is humbled. The cross in its foolishness, the cross in its weakness has saved those who believe, has revealed God to us when the best of human wisdom and understanding couldn't. The cross is the great dividing line of humanity. The cross is the great humbler of human wisdom. And the cross also reveals two great human objections to faith. The cross brings them into light, so to speak. Paul continues in, in verse 22 to to uh, 23, I think that should be, sorry, but he goes on to say, Jews demand a miraculous sign and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you you'll know that there's several times throughout Jesus' earthly ministry where, where Pharisees or religious teachers, people who are uh, from the religious establishment, come to Jesus and say, we demand a sign for you. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And if you're anything like me, you, you've thought at times, were they just absolutely blind? Because the Gospels are filled with miraculous signs and wonders. One of the times that they come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we demand a sign from you to, to show us that you are from heaven, is just after Jesus has fed 4,000 people with one person's lunch. 
And then they come up to him and say, we demand a sign from you. And I've, I've often thought, are they just that stupid? But see, the thing is, they're actually looking for a different kind of sign. As, as lovely as the miraculous healings and the casting out of demons and, and the feeding of lots of people, who wouldn't like that? Just to be following this guy around and he's teaching you some wisdom and then there's free lunch. As good as they are, they're not the kind of sign they were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah that was like Moses. They were looking for, for one who would repeat the exodus. They lived under the tyranny and occupation of the, the might of the Roman Empire. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and bring Rome to its knees. That God's people might be set free. They were looking for thunder and lightning and plagues and rivers turned to blood and locusts. They were looking for some sign from Jesus that he was the overthrower. That God would use to free Israel from their oppressors. They were looking for a sign. There's this one time in Matthew's Gospel where, where, where there's some religious teachers come to Jesus and they ask for a sign and, and Jesus gets a little bit riled up and he says to them, the only sign, he says, a wicked and foolish generation demands a sign and, and then he says, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so I will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And, and so this is a reference to Jesus saying, essentially, you're looking for a powerful sign that I will overthrow the tyranny of Rome. The sign you will get is my death. I will be dead and buried. And the course of time has shown that, that Jesus' death was on a cross and, and so they're looking for a powerful sign and Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified and killed. That's, that's the sign that you're going to get. I'm going to be tortured and revealed to be shameful and weak. That is the sign that you will get from me. And so the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. We preach Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews. And the, the great ob objection that is revealed by the cross here is our desire for God to act in ways that benefit me. God should reveal himself in powerful ways that help me out, that solve my problems. So the Jews stumble over the cross, but, but we stumble as well every time God doesn't act the way we want to and we trip up over it. We stumble over the same objection to faith that's revealed by the cross, that we want God to act the way we want Him to in every situation. And so the Jews wanted a powerful overthrower, they got a crucified messiah and they stumble over the cross and paul goes on to say the greeks look for wisdom and so the greeks just like the jewish religious teachers were looking for a sign from jesus but they were looking for not a powerful supernatural proof they were looking for intellectual proof they were looking for jesus to be reasonable they were looking for a god who fit their conceptual grid of how a god should be and function and so the incarnation, a, a God coming to earth and walking around people didn't fit the Greek philosophical grid of who a God should be, not less the crucifying of that God who came and walked around the people did not fit the grid 
of how they thought God should be and should act. And so they saw her as foolishness. They fell into the trap that all human wisdom that's apart from God falls into of elevating their wisdom above God and then demanding that God fit within it. And so just as Christ crucified, Christ the Messiah on a cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. And the objection they trip over is that they believe that God should act in ways that I think He should act. This is a little bit beyond just the idea of, well, God should do stuff for me, to God should only behave in ways that I think God should behave. And if it looks a little bit outside the grid, if, if God's behaving a little bit differently to the way I think He should act or could act or would act if He was really God, for example, if He sent His Son to earth to die on a cross for us, then that must not be God. And so it's foolishness to the Greeks, the cross. But we stumble over the same objection every time, not that we shouldn't ever have discernment, but every time we go, well, if if God were really real or if that was really God, it would look like this. We have a grid and we try and make God live in accordance with that grid. Understanding who God is is important. Growing in our knowledge of the ways and the workings of God, knowing the voice of Jesus and following Him as our shepherd is important. But what we can never do is elevate our greed of who God is above God. We always have to maintain space for God to be different than we thought He was. For God to act in the world different to what we thought He was going to. And so the cross reveals two great human objections to faith. It's a stumbling block to those who want God to act in the way they want Him to for their benefit. And it's a, it's a foolishness to those who want God to act in the way we think He should act. So the cross is the great dividing line of humanity. The cross uh, is... Um, sorry, the cross humbles all human wisdom and the cross reveals two great human objections, but the cross is also the power and wisdom of God. The cross is the power and wisdom of God on display. And so Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but... And some of the greatest things in the Scriptures come after that word, but... But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the cross is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we're going back to where Paul began with some look at the cross and and see foolishness or a stumbling block, but, but others look at the cross and see the power of God and the wisdom of God on display. So if we lay aside our objections, if we dethrone our own wisdom, uh, if we hear and respond to the call of God, if we believe in Jesus, then we see the cross as the most reasonable belief that we could have. And the reality is that evidence, historical evidence, abounds for the cross. No serious historian denies the existence of Jesus 
as a man on earth. No serious historian denies that there was a man named Jesus who lived in around the first century in Jerusalem or in Judea and who was crucified in Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. Evidence abounds for that truth. Um, many serious historians deny the resurrection because of their greed of how uh, the world works, but evidence abounds for the reality that Jesus Christ did not just uh, die on the cross, but was raised to life three days later. Um, my point this morning is not to work through the evidence, but to, to say that this thing, this cross that looks foolishness and weak and absurd outside of belief in Jesus is, is a reasonable, faithful intelligent thing to believe in but the point Paul is making is that our own wisdom and reason alone don't lead us to the cross it's only through God's revealing of his power in the cross that we come to faith in him the cross of Jesus is the power and wisdom of God it's the power of God who knew the world didn't need another overthrower it's God's power Revealed not to crush the empire, but to free us from the captivity of sin. God knew that the world didn't need another overthrower like Moses. The world needed power to be displayed in humility on the cross. It's the wisdom of God who knew that a God who was distant and reasonable was not what the world needed. The world needed a God who would step into the mess and bear it on the cross for us. The cross is the power and the wisdom of God on display. And Paul goes on to say in the next few verses that go beyond what Dan read. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble uh, by birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. See, in Jesus' cross, power and wisdom from God are revealed to make us righteous, to make us holy, that is set apart from God, to make us redeemed, that is set free from the power of sin through the cross. Jesus accomplished what human wisdom, be it religious or secular, could never accomplish. And Paul says, so that no one may boast before him. And so boasting um, in, in the original Greek language means what we think it means. It means that celebrating, um, but it also means trusting. See, to boast is to both celebrate but also to trust in. And, and what's missing in our English translation is the word flesh. In the Greek, the, the word, Greek word sarx is there, the Greek word for flesh. And, and so what Paul is saying is that because of the cross, all human boasting or trusting in our own flesh, our own capacities is eradicated. 
we can no longer boast or trust in our flesh. So Paul finishes, and we're going to finish here today with these words. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts or, or trusts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who trusts, trust in the Lord. And as we're preparing, I'm just going to read, we are going to finish with those words, we're going to come back to them. And so Paul says, as it is written, and this is where it is actually written in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, uh, he's quoting these words, he says, This is what the Lord says, the prophet Isaiah. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so Paul is quoting this scripture and he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who trusts, trust in the Lord. And, and let us not trust in our own flesh. Let us not trust in our own wisdom. Let us not trust in our own strength. Let us not trust in our own financial resources. In light of the cross, Paul says to us, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who trusts, trust in the Lord. And so as we end in worship this morning, may we not trust in or boast in our own flesh, but may we trust in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ.